Our Bible reading this morning is taken from James chapter 5 and I'll be reading verses 13 to 20. We're reading of the prayer of faith. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of our Lord. Right, this morning, we um, pray your blessing upon, upon him. Thank you for doing that, Susie. Uh, I want to welcome Tim Taylor back as well. After many weeks away, unwell, um, mindful always as I am that when I preach to a congregation, there's just so much going on for people. So I know Nathan has his last chemo treatment coming up. I know Vresh had his first radiation treatment this week. Like, there's just so much going on. Um, May God's blessing be upon each one, uh, wherever we find ourselves. I wanted to reframe my brief little announcement. You've probably forgotten about it now, um, because it was more about a roster. But as I've been thinking about this, can I just reframe uh, what I'm asking you to do? We recently undertook a national church life survey, and that indicated that the highest strength, the greatest strength of this congregation is hospitality. So there are people in this congregation who love serving others, who love having people around the table. So what I'm actually inviting you to do is to set the table and to prepare a meal for your brothers and sisters in Christ that they might experience uh, the love and the forgiveness of Christ through the communion meal. Now, if I put it that way, perhaps that will just make you consider, is that something that you could be involved in? So if you love hosting, if you love hospitality, if you enjoy setting the table at home uh, to invite others and to show them love and hospitality, well, here's an opportunity just to extend that gift and in love and passion and heart here amongst your church brothers and sisters. So I would love, Sue or I would love to hear from you if you're available to do that. Well, today we arrive at the conclusion of our series in James. James is a pastoral letter written to Jewish Christians who are scattered around the nations. Loved for its practical nature, James addresses a wide range of topics uh, concerned with living the Christian faith as opposed to believing the Christian faith. You see, James assumes that his audience already has the belief. They have 
the theology. What he is concerned with is how that belief, how that theology is actually working itself out. You see, for James, faith must work. It's not all theory. It's practical. Specifically, James 5, 13 to 16 is about prayer and healing. It contains one of the clearest promises in the New Testament of healing. Several times in my ministry, I've had the privilege of gathering elders, anointing a sick person with oil, and praying in faith for their healing. It is a biblical practice that I affirm and will continue to do. However, I must confess that this passage raises some big questions. With such a strong promise towards healing, why is it that when the process laid out in James 5, 13 to 16, is followed as close, closely and as faithfully as possible, that healing does not always take place? I certainly believe that God can and does heal, but speaking from my own personal experience and the experience of others I know, miraculous physical healing seems to be more of an exception than the rule. But that's not what the text suggests. So how do we to understand James 5, 13 to 16? With a tricky text like this one, which is open to abuse and misinterpretation, it's really important that we dig deep into the word and try and grapple with what was James originally trying to communicate to his audience. I rarely get my Greek interlinear Bible and my analytical lexicon off the shelf. I'm not a hugely academic guy, but for this passage I did, and it's been a fascinating experience or exercise, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with you what I've learnt. So this morning we're going to do a bit of technical word work, which does require a little bit more mental engagement. I've been thinking of this as more of a teaching moment than a preaching moment. Uh, Can I invite you into the classroom? And I I just want to ask for a little bit more of your time because we have to do a little bit of work, okay, for this text to, to really unpack and understand this text. And if you come with me, I trust that this will be a blessing and that this text will open up to a fuller meaning for us. Greek language of which the New Testament was originally written is a very, very different language to English. When I studied Greek at college, it helped me to understand that language matters. The different inflections, meanings, and interpretations of words can have a significant bearing on how we understand certain texts of the Bible. 
I also came to appreciate why there are so many different translations of the Bible. Now, I wholeheartedly affirm and appreciate and enjoy the many different translations. But it's so important that we, when we're reading a translation, understand where the translators are coming from. What is their goal in this particular kind of translation? You see, some translators will try and and stick to as close as possible to the original language, the original meaning of a word, sorry, word, whilst others, and sometimes this can sound a little bit like a Yoda language. It's a bit clunky in English. But other interpretators, other translators, will focus more on the meaning so that the modern reader can, can understand the, the meaning behind the text. An example of this, um, two phrases that I've heard only this week. So imagine that you're a translator and you're trying to translate these two phrases, perhaps for an Asian context. Okay, the first phrase is, it's raining cats and dogs. And the second phrase is, the world is your oyster. Now, if you want to be literal and faithful to translate these words, then you will just simply try and find the same equivalent words that say those same sentences. And you're remaining as faithful to the words as you can. But if you're more concerned with wanting to try and convey the meaning behind those words, then you might try and find a different analogy or phrase that describes that it's, it's raining torrentially outside or there's a world of possibilities before you. Does that make sense? Both kinds of translations have their place. Anytime we seek to examine a few verses in isolation, okay, which is what we're doing this morning, we're extracting this passage and we're looking at it kind of in isolation, we must always understand why are these words here? Why are they here and not there? The fact that they're here is going to make a difference on how they are to be understood. Does that make sense? In other words, the placement of these words about prayer and healing matter. Equally, we need to consider of those words that we so often extract, what's the overall theme of the book or the letter in which they come from? And... What are the themes or what is the author really trying to convey in that letter or in that book? And does this particular verse or passage or phrase, does does that fit with the overall theme? And if there's a bit of a jar, then maybe we have to, to look at it through a slightly different lens. So it's really important that we become good at reading our Bibles If you've got a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be looking at a number of different passages. I'm going to go quickly, and they'll be on the screen. Some of you will find it hard to see some of those words, 
But if you've got a Bible with you, even if you've got a device, I encourage you to take it out and have it before you. I think there's a real lack of good Bible reading going on amongst Christians today. Uh, And I just really want to try and encourage us to dig deep into God's Word and to just illustrate the power of looking at things in their proper context and their themes. It's remarkable. Commentators struggle to find a singular theme uh, for the letter of James. And it's often kind of considered a bit of a disconnected book. He, he's talking about a whole range of things. And, and that makes sense because he's concerned, as I mentioned, with the practical living of the Christian faith. And the practical living of the Christian faith is, is diverse, isn't it? There's so many aspects to how our faith plays out in everyday life. And James, being a pastor, writing from a pastor's heart, is very concerned that he wants to try and cover, I guess, as much as he can to help people understand what it looks like to live out faith. Now, I in no way consider myself a commentator or a theologian. So please, there's all kinds of things that I'm going to say this morning that are not gospel, they're just my observations, okay? But as I've read the letter of James time and time and time from start to finish, which, by the way, is exactly how letters in the Bible are meant to be read, are meant to be heard. They were written by an author, often an apostle, Uh, or in fact, yes, by an apostle. They were sent to the church and the entire letter was to be read out publicly. So unlike what we do where we'll have a small, like a snippet, week after week after week, you just hear the whole thing. And when you hear the whole thing, the, the, the bigger themes tend to emerge. And here's what I've observed in James. There is a large concern that does come through and that is perseverance the NIV translates this as perseverance the NRSV uses the word endurance and the ESV uses the word steadfastness now uh, there are two Greek words the first one called pomoni which means patience and anoki which means forbearance and so depending on the author's emphasis these words will be translated into perseverance or or forbearance or endurance. And other times these words appear in the New Testament, they refer to things like patient endurance, patient awaiting, a, a patient frame of mind, endurance in adherence to an object, constant, perseveringly enduring an affliction, undergoing suffering. See all the variety of inflections that these words can have. Now, obviously, they all share a general similarity. It's just that some descriptions are perhaps more apt for a particular situation or context than another. Now, as I've read through James, I've come to see, interestingly, that James has bookended his letter with these themes of perseverance. 
and he stresses the need for believers to persevere. Have a look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now for chapter 5, verse 7a. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Verse 10 and 11. Brothers and sisters, as an example of Patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Christian faith is not a sprint, it's like a tour de France, uh, it's an endurance race of incredible heights. It's not for the faint-hearted. And it requires enormous stamina to keep going. Many fall away, as illustrated in the parable of the sower. James wants his readers to persevere in the face of suffering. What is this suffering you speak of? Well, James, we don't, James isn't writing to address a particular subject matter like many of the other epistles are. We don't know exactly what the kind of suffering these believers are faced with. And we may not hear it these days because it's not a great sales pitch for Christianity. But here's what I know. In the New Testament, suffering was synonymous with being a Christian. And do you know why? Because the founding Lord and King was crucified. And so you don't become a Christian and expect not to suffer. The message of the gospel is one of dying to self in order to be raised to new life in Christ. So the theme of perseverance in faith is universal for any believer. And it's pertinent for believers in James's time. It's pertinent for believers today. He wants his listeners to keep his eye on the prize and not the temporary hardships and struggles they might be experiencing. He wants believers to persevere, to press on, to reach the goal of maturity in Christ. What I find interesting is that James closes off his letter. The the final two verses are, it's like this Simpson and his donkey image. Uh, It's about rescuing a brother or a sister who has not endured. So he's talking all about perseverance and then the letter finishes. It's like, if you reach someone, if you can save a brother or a sister, if you can pull them back, who has drifted away, who has walked away from the faith, you will save this person from death and you will cover over a multitude of sins. That's perseverance. You know, there's someone here who hasn't persevered if you pull them back. I was like, wow, 
This is such a strong concern of James. So James begins and ends his pastoral letter urging believers to persevere. It's footy finals time. And I think a really helpful way to think about James is to think of it like a half-time speech. It's a speech of encouragement to persevere, to press on, to keep going. You're only halfway there. Keep your eye on the prize. You might be suffering temporarily. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eyes heavenward. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, the reason why this is all so important is that when we understand the bigger theme, the bigger picture, as I mentioned earlier, it gives us a lens to look through the rest of the book. So when we extract something, we need to run it through that lens of perseverance to try and understand where the writer is coming from. So, with that in mind, let's, look, let's re-examine these verses Verse 13 to 16. Is anyone, and I particularly, there are three words we're going to look at. They're underlined. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. As I mentioned, there's three words we're going to look at. And the first one, which is translated as sick, the Greek is asthenai. I've got some Greek folk in the congregation here. I'm sure they could say it a lot better than me. Uh, the, the next word is well, okay, and that is kamnota. And then the final word is healed, and that's so say. When we read those three words, sick, well, and healed, we immediately and understandably go straight to the physical state of a person. This is not incorrect, as we will come to see, but there's, there's more going on. Um, so the first word, asthenai which gets translated as either sick or ill, the word, the origin, the root of the word means weak. In the Gospels, this same word is used to describe people who are physically ill. So if Jesus comes across someone and they're lame or crippled, uh, it will be this word that is used and it is interpreted as sick or ill. That's exclusive to the Gospels and interestingly, James. Everywhere else in the New Testament, and we're only dealing with the New Testament because it's the only book written in Greek, but everywhere else in the New Testament that this word is used, it has a different meaning. It's talking more about struggling with uh, the temptation of sin. So a couple of examples is Hebrews 4.15 and 1 Corinthians 9.22. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our 
weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. To the weak, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So what we learn from this is this word atstene can mean both physical illness but also spiritual weariness, spiritual weakness. Does that make sense? The next word, kamnota, uh, gets translated as sick and also it can be used to refer to weary. Uh, and this is most frequently used to describe the weary, struggling believer. Uh, and two examples of where this word are used is Hebrews and Revelation. Hebrews 12, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And Revelation 2, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The final word, so say, in verse 15 of James 5, uh, translated as well or perhaps healed also means or its root word is saved the esv okay which just remind wind the clock back remember we we're talking about the different kinds of translations the esv sits more in this camp okay and they will use the word Save. So just compare the NIV to the ESV. The NIV, verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. The ESV, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Can I just pause there for a minute um, and say that I think a lot of Christians, in fact, probably the majority in evangelical world, the particularly Baptist world from my experience, prefer the NIV. It's a very trustworthy translation. The NIV would sit closer to here than here, but it's probably nicely in the middle. <laughs> and I think that kind of sums Baptists up pretty well. <laughs> we kind of like to sit in, in, somewhere in the middle. Um, now, interestingly... James uses this word, so say, four other times in his letter. And in each of those occasions, both in the NIV and the ESV, the word save is used rather than healed or well. So just have a look. 121, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Chapter 4, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy you, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Chapter 5, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, remember the reason for this is that the Greek words have a variety of inflections that the English language doesn't have. So the task for the translator is to try and discern what is the closest, most accurate meaning of that word in this particular context, in this particular verse. I don't think I'd like to be a translator. 
I mean, think about your entire Bible, Hebrew and Greek, the amount of work that has gone into presenting us with this is amazing. And the Houstons, who we support in Mozambique and Malawi, are actually doing this very job of trying to translate the scriptures into the Yao tongue. A fascinating work. That's what they're doing. That's, that's what we are supporting them in doing. An example of so say outside of James is Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. So what is the point of all of this? Well, the point is that with this knowledge in mind, the text opens up to larger possibilities, thus removing some of the questions it raises around the promise of physical healing. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that physical healing is not in view. It is. And as such, I'm thoroughly committed to following the pattern outlined in James 5. However, physical healing is only ever temporary. There is a bigger concern at hand. And this is where the emphasis of sin comes into these verses. Have you noticed how often James is talking about sin and confession of sin and forgiveness of sin in the very same passage he's talking about prayer and healing? The reality is people need forgiveness for their sin more than they need physical healing because unlike physical ailments unaddressed, the disease of sin is eternally terminal. Now, with all the work that we have just done, and I'm so grateful for you, your patience with me this morning. I'm running through this. As I said, it's a little bit of an unusual, kind of more of a lecture, but I'm excited to share with you what I've learned. So here is the JSV. You've heard of the JSV, haven't you? The Joel suggested version. Let's just consider what this passage looks like with these, you know, different nuanced words. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you weak? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the weary person. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be saved. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Is James 5, 13 to 16 about physical uh, sickness or is it about spiritual weariness? Being a good Baptist, I'm going to suggest it includes both. <laughs> I'm much more comfortable with being in the middle. And I think the words that the author has used were intentionally used to convey both. But the problem the translator has is they can't say both. They have to pick one. Now, the commentators are right. I'm not right. They are way more academic and educated than I am. So please, 
I'm just sharing with you what I've learned as a, as a student of God's word. Um, you can do this same work yourselves. Um, doesn't mean that we're always right, but it's just interesting, isn't it? Now, even when the words are translated differently, physical illness is still in view. And again, let me stress, I'm not wanting in any way, shape or form to minimise the potential for divine healing. But what I do find helpful is the text now opens up to a wonderful method for strengthening and raising up weary believers. We only think of asking the elders to come and anoint with oil when someone is physically sick, but what if you're feeling spiritually weary? I would say there'd be a lot of people here today who are feeling spiritually weary. We don't take it as seriously or as urgently, though, as the physical, do we? It's natural. We're physical beings. The physical's more acute. It's more obvious. It's often more urgent. But in God's eyes, we're whole people. We're not just physical people. We're spiritual people as well. We have a soul. And I think to have a community of mature, trustworthy, faithful believers, that's the elders, uh, set a person aside anoint them with oil, pray for the forgiveness of their sins and the restoration of their fellowship with the Lord is a wonderful practice, one in which I would wholeheartedly love to endorse to you and to us, the church. And we know that in this circumstance, the promise of healing and restoration and salvation can always be trusted It's not something that on some occasions will be experienced and on others it won't be. We as believers, because of Christ, can have absolute confidence in our eternal healing and salvation when we come humbly before the Lord. What about the oil? A brief word. Now, the use of oil in ancient times, had both practical and religious purposes. In ancient times, all had medicinal use. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the man healed him with oil. And oil was also used for sacraments to consecrate things to God. So an example is priests in the Old Testament being anointed with oil. Or think of uh, David, for example, being anointed with oil, set apart as a, as a king, It's about setting apart. It's about consecrating. So it could be that the use of oil is, in a sense, setting this person apart for a special moment of prayer. As you say, Lord, we we take this seriously, so we're going to anoint this person with oil, consecrate them to you, because this prayer really matters. Not that prayers don't matter, but like we're really serious about this. Okay. We can't talk about healing and prayer in James 5 and not talk about sin because sin is very clearly in view here. Jesus' ministry included lots of physical healings. His 
healings, his miracles, illustrated his teaching. So Jesus didn't just go around talking about how God transforms your life. He demonstrated it. And with every single miracle, people were given a window, if you like, into the kingdom of God. And that's the thing that Jesus spoke about more than anything else, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God with Jesus as king is parallel or or opposed to the kingdom of darkness with Satan as its lord. And sin is the fruit of the kingdom of darkness. So every time Jesus did a healing miracle, he's restoring the kingdom back to its original state. He's taking something from the kingdom of darkness and transferring it into the kingdom of light. We know uh, from Revelation that in God's coming kingdom, there'll be no illness, no disease, no suffering, no sickness, no death. So Jesus transforms that which has been relegated to the kingdom of darkness, illness, suffering, sickness, death, and he transforms it into the kingdom of light. Before sin entered the world, things were as they should be. And then sin entered the world, and all of a sudden, things are no longer as they should be. So every time sins are forgiven, the kingdom is put right. Things are restored as to how they should be. And so for Jesus, the removal of a person's sins always takes priority because sin is what keeps a person bound to the kingdom of darkness. But when that person is forgiven and set free, they're released into the glorious kingdom of light. This is where God desires for his people to be. And whilst we always, as humans, tend to just have the the temporary in mind, God always sees the big picture. And a great illustration of this is in Mark 2. Uh, with the paralyzed man being let down from the roof. His friends brought him to Jesus because of his immediate need. He couldn't walk, he was paralyzed, and his immediate need was healing in his legs. However, Jesus sees the bigger picture, and the first thing he says to him is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, Jesus always cared for the whole person, and so shortly thereafter, he physically heals him as well. Interesting that as I looked at this text, I actually found a connection with James 5. Mark 2, 3 to 5. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice how the man's sins were forgiven, not because he repented, not because he asked, but because of the faith of his friends. And this is what James 5 talks about. Because in James 5, it's not the request or the prayer or the plea or the faith of the sick or weary person. It's the faith of the elders. Bring people, gather people around you 
who are not spiritually weary and have them pray for you. Lean into their faith. I've been thinking around pastoral care and how one of the best ways we can pastorally care for one another is when someone is physically not doing so well, we can pray for them, we can visit them, partly because we can maybe even read the scriptures to them. Not only that, but often when people are feeling weak, they don't feel like they can pray or they can read God's word. And so there's a picture here of acknowledging that at various times throughout our lives, we're going to be low. And these are the moments and these are the times when we need to call others around us who are in a different space and lean into their faith. James 5 clearly stresses the priority, practice and power of prayer. Every verse from 13 to 18 mentions prayer, including different ways of praying. In verse 13, the individual prays. In verse 14, the elders pray for a person. In verse 16, the entire community prays for one another. This is a wonderful symphony of prayer, all different kinds of prayers, all necessary, all valid. We're getting really close. Like my little circle on the iPad is like really close to the end. But we can't not talk about Elijah, right? Because we did a series in Elijah, as you will recall. And that series in Elijah was the very reason to prompt James. Because Elijah gets mentioned in James. And so I thought, oh, this is a nice little connection. So why does James mention Elijah? Well, as we know from our recent study on Elijah, amongst the people of Israel, Elijah is a a towering figure of faith. But as we looked at Elijah's story, remember that we saw that he was very, very human in the Kareth ravine. Uh, Remember that after this incredible high, he had an incredible low. And so what we see on the Mount Carmel and then running away to the cave, back to the Kareth ravine. Sorry if you're visiting, you won't understand that language. But, you know, we see in Elijah this great faith and this great fear. And I think James's point, obviously, is to say that, you know, even Elijah, who is considered to be this towering giant of faith, God listened to his prayers and acted. And, uh, you know, the encouragement there is to remember that anyone can pray, that it's God who is most powerful. Now, what is interesting, though, is remember when we studied Elijah, his first miracle was raising a dead boy to life. You know, he's staying with this widow. The child dies. Elijah prays for him, rises, raises him to life. Now, if ever there's a physical healing, boom, that's it. Why didn't James use that illustration You know, if this passage was only about physical healing, why did he not use the example of Elijah raising the dead boy? He prayed. He chose to use the example of the rain. And you know what the rain was about? The spiritual state of the nation. Elijah was a prophet to his own people. They'd fallen away from God. They were worshipping other idols. The king of the Israelites had become so far removed. 
So I just think it's interesting that James chose to use that illustration of Elijah. Elijah, after all, just was like human just like you or I, and we can be assured that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So what can we take away from all of this? I'm going to give you a very short conclusion and then we're going to pray and finish up. Is that okay, Matt? Yep. Okay. Yep. Good. So what can we take away from all of this? I suspect that James speaks in absolute terms in chapter 5 because he wants to inspire action and confidence among his readers. He wants them to persevere in prayer. You know, if James had written that sometimes the prayer will be healed, it doesn't quite inspire the same action and confidence, does it? If you are struggling, either physically or spiritually, pray. And in particular, persevere in prayer. And if you find yourself too weak to pray, either again because of physical illness or spiritual weakness, call the elders. And it doesn't mean, you know, the four people in this congregation who I so dearly love and admire and are wonderful people. They are indeed elders, but there are plenty of other elder type figures in our church community who you can call upon. Call upon these people, pastors, leaders, mature believers, and invite them to come alongside and pray for you. James 5, 13 to 20 assures us of this. A community of people who support one another in troubled times, who joyfully sing songs of praise in happy times, who are humble enough to confess their sins to one another and fervently pray for each other's healing in the midst of spiritual weakness or physical illness, as well as seeking to win back those who have fallen away, this community will undoubtedly Undoubtedly experience the blessing and the healing presence of Jesus, their Lord. Erina Community Baptist Church, may this be true of us as we seek to become a loving church that knows and shares the life-changing message of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, so what, while Joel was preaching, I had a message that came through that I thought I'd, I'd just share, um, not a concern, but it's a, just a prayer point from the, um, from the uh, state youth camp. So um, while they're there, they're, they're learning all about Jesus and they're really trying to, that the, the youth are, are learning and, and, and trying to um, meet with, with God while they're there. But this is what um, Rob says. He says, hi church, to those who have been praying for safety over us at the state youth camp, thank you. We experienced some pretty crazy winds during the night and many gazebos didn't make it to the morning. <laughs> but thankfully, no campers were hurt. Some reports had these winds flying up to 150 k's. Keep praying for our young people as they develop a better understanding of Jesus and themselves. Thanks again. So I just wanted to share that with you. So keep praying for those guys as they're learning more about Jesus 
the, the rest of the uh, today and for safety as well. Great. So thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for worshipping with us. I know that there was a lot to take in this morning. Um, if you would like my notes to process some of this stuff, you're very welcome. Just send me an email and I'll flick them right to you. The sermon will also be online if you want to just go over it again. I really appreciate your patience and forbearance and perseverance with me this morning. I trust that you've got a better grasp of James 5.13 to 20. Why don't I just close in prayer and then we can have some morning tea and get on with our day. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word and the richness of it. We thank you for the letter of James that we've been able to spend uh, several weeks considering. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning that you would strengthen them, that you would help us to persevere in the faith. And thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and pray and know that the prayer of those who seek your face are effective prayers. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace and go in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.